Hello, everyone. I'm Jacob Goldberg, New Narratives Editor-in-Chief. On this episode of Southeast Asia Dispatches, I speak to Peter Murphy, Chairman of the International Coalition for Human Rights in the Philippines, also known as ITRIP. ITRIP is a network of organizations in the Philippines and in diaspora communities around the world working to inform the international community about extrajudicial killings and other human rights abuses in the Philippines. Philippine human rights groups estimate that up to 30,000 people have been killed in President Rodrigo Duterte's war on drugs, and more than 400 have been killed in what appear to be politically motivated attacks. Almost every week, reports emerge of a new massacre, and almost always, these are coordinated attacks, and the victims are workers, poor people, fisher folk, indigenous leaders, and human rights defenders. As Peter says during this interview, these killings are aimed at preventing leftist people's movements and political parties from campaigning. And as we get closer to the general election in May, we might see the frequency of these attacks escalate. So I would encourage our listeners around Southeast Asia to find iTrip online or on Instagram and get involved in one of their many ongoing campaigns to support the victims of political violence and hold the perpetrators accountable. I'd also like to warn our listeners that this episode contains descriptions of sexual assault. If you enjoy what we're doing at New Narrative, please support our work by becoming a member at newnarrative.com slash join. Memberships start at just 52 US dollars a year. That's a dollar a week. Or you can donate at newnarrative.com slash donate. And check out our website at newnarrative.com for more stories from Southeast Asia. And now, here's the interview. Hi, Peter. Uh, welcome to the show. Uh, good day there, Jacob. Um, yes, my name is Peter Murphy. I'm the chairperson of the Global Council of the International Coalition for Human Rights in the Philippines. I'm based in Sydney, Australia. Nice to hear from you. Can you tell us, Peter, how you started campaigning against extrajudicial killings in the Philippines? Well, I, I think it goes back to the 1990s for me. Um, I really cannot recall the first case of a campaign, but we, we've had, um, through my work in solidarity with trade unions between Australia and the Philippines, um, you know, these really very painful experiences of uh, trade union leaders being killed and then more broadly, you know, other democratic voices in the Philippines subject to this extrajudicial killing um, for a very long time. Um, I think uh, during the presidency of Gloria Arroyo, it was a very, very bad period and uh, people I personally knew were killed. So, you know, it's very much uh, close to home for me that this, uh, this is the reality of life for um, people willing to just stand up for basic people's rights, human rights, workers' rights, environmental rights. Um, yeah, this can happen to them in the Philippines. And uh, since uh, President Duterte came to power in 2016, it sort of took on a very violent higher dimension with the... Uh, what he called the war on drugs, but it's really a sort of a, a war to uh, eliminate poor people who, you know, somebody or other has decided to get in the way. And, and so it's been a vast number of people killed. Um, we think over 30,000 people have been killed in this five, five and a half years or so, um, just in this particular aspect of uh, the repression in the Philippines. In the past, you could count in a few thousands the number of people killed for polit directly political reasons. And uh, even under the dictator Marcos, the numbers killed was in the, you know, less than 10,000. So we're, 
with Duterte, we're really in a different dimension. And uh, I think the international community is sort of aware of it, but not really paying much attention. And uh, underneath the mass killings of poor people, they continue, you know, we have over 400, 420, I think, deaths of uh, people for directly political reasons. You've touched on many of the topics that I want to go a little bit deeper into over the course of this conversation. But before that, you said that you've been involved in campaigning against these abuses since the 90s. Is that when the uh, International Coalition for Human Rights in the Philippines um, came into being? So the ICHIRP, we call it, uh, was set up in 2013. So it's um, it's not 10 years, but it's nearly 10 years. And... Um, this was in the presidency of Benigno Aquino, the second, the third. Uh, so um, this presidency was meant to, was was actually you know a lower tempo of political killings than had happened under Arroyo, but uh, especially by you know he was elected in 2010. Within a few years, the the rate of killings of indigenous people, especially in Mindanao was very, very severe and alarming. So, again, it's very hidden away uh, down in the south of the country uh, among Indigenous people in rural areas, but uh, it was bad. And the the elements which had run campaigns earlier, the so we had them under the title Stop the Killings in the Philippines, uh, thought we had to do more. So... A big conference was held in Quezon City in, in Manila in, um, I think, Ju July 2013. Um, and many, many organisations took part in the uh, conference, which was about peace and human rights in the Philippines. So uh, in the preliminary work for that, organisations outside the Philippines elected delegates to represent them for this conference. And at the conference, a special session was held to create a, a, an organisation um, called ICHIRP. So uh, I was involved, in, I think I was the secretary of the, um, the Global Council that was uh, inaugurated ICHIRP. And, um, you know, our... Our first focus was on really the stop the killings in the Philippines and promoting the need for a concerted effort at peace negotiations between the government and the uh, National Democratic Front of the Philippines. And uh, when the election came along in 2016, we, we had some hope at initially uh, that Duterte might represent a, a better option, um, mainly because of the rhetoric he, he had in his campaign, which was very emphatic about the need to end the repression, the need for the peace talks to take place, and uh, the idea of releasing political prisoners, of whom there were hundreds, and um, the... Uh, other rhetoric he had in the campaign about filling Manila Bay with the dead bodies of drug users was so lurid uh, that I, my my own point of view, I couldn't quite hear, you know, this as a direct, a literal threat. Um, but as it turned out, it, it really was. And um, 
so there was a few months, I think, after his election when it became apparent that the the, the killings of poor people was really a massive uh, challenge. Uh, on the other hand, Duterte did initiate uh, serious progress in the peace negotiations. These peace negotiations have been going on since the Ramos presidency in 1992. So it's a very, you know, long story and many, many halts and uh, reversals and, and so on. So um, all of us involved in this have got a, a fairly philosophical approach uh, at the level of peace talks that, yes, we might make some progress, but let's be very patient with it and so on. But going back to Duterte, he... he created his negotiating panel that were very enthusiastic to make progress uh, on the very first substantive agenda um, that was uh, uh, had become possible in that uh, process. And this was really about land reform and uh, economic development. It's very, very significant. And, and they did make progress. So th there was some real optimism for a few months, but it, uh, it fell apart. So Initially there, we were saying our, our focus was just peace, PH, um, and calling for action on releasing political prisoners, building confidence, getting those talks going and making some uh, significant agreements. But uh, there was a very significant counter push by generals, by the United States, um, to this kind of uh, direction. And uh, Duterte himself uh, I think was always of two minds. Maybe he uh, was going to uh, get something to happen there, but he probably didn't think it was absolutely necessary for his presidency. Um, but anyway, the big trigger was uh, when the uh, gunfire or they call it the Battle of Marawi, the Siege of Marawi. Uh, this was a sort of flare, a very, very violent flare up of uh, fighting between a sort of Islamic fundamentalist uh, uh, militia and uh, police and army in Marawi City on the west coast of Mindanao. And uh, this was in um, April, I think, uh, uh, 2017. And it was. Um, a moment of obviously Duterte made a big switch. He, he was already uh, turning down the peace talks. He'd already um, had, a, had a few stop starts uh, with uh, uh, ceasefires and so on. And uh, he just instantly declared martial law. He was actually in Beijing at the time, I think, or Moscow. And so it seemed to me to be almost pre-planned, probably was. Um, but by declaring martial law, he, he completely relied then on the military, his generals, and then on the United States and Australian and other governments to provide military support for that battle, which went on for months through to October, and, and there was a lot of destruction and killing in Marawi. So once that happened, um, there was a decisive shift. By the end of 2017, the um, uh, peace talks were... were formally cancelled, or any, any sort of uh, legislative weapon that Duterte had to declare the uh, communist rebels as uh, terrorists was used. And um, the, uh, by the end of 2018, there was a significant uh, escalation of military action in certain regions outside of Mindanao. And then there was um, 
the creation of this national task force to end local communist armed conflict, a very unwieldy type of uh, acronym, but it, um, it was created to uh, more or less conscript the entire civil service into repression. Um, even though it talks about armed conflict being repressed, actually it was all against unarmed civilians. And uh, the, the level of uh, political killings really rapidly increased from the end of 2017, uh, starting particularly in Negros and Bicol, um, but, but then more extensively. Um, the last, I think we'll talk about it a bit more in this discussion, but the Bloody Sunday events in uh, March last year um, was a particularly uh, shocking uh, expression of the policy. But um, anyway, this is how, this is how it, it, it proceeded under Duterte. So uh, ICHIRP became um, a focus for getting legal assistance to people, a focus for um, getting out the news that there was a violently bad shift of policy happening in the Philippines. And, and then we, we had some, not so much ITRIP, but uh, other organisations had some significant success at the United Nations Human Rights Council in drawing attention to the situation. And uh, the the... Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights did a really important report on the situation in the Philippines, which was uh, tabled in uh, June 2020. And unfortunately, the Human Rights Council, the delegates of the various governments there, did not really take it forward. We then at ICHIRP decided that we would do the job which everyone had hoped the Human Rights Council would do and develop a more extensive uh, investigation and reporting on the situation and we we did that in 2021 so this was a very very big job um, in the conditions of the pandemic where not only so it was already the case that Duterte refused to allow anyone from the UN Human Rights uh, Commissioner's Office to come um, no special rapporteurs were allowed into the country he threatened to arrest anyone from the International Criminal Court <laughs> And of course, uh, he was expelling uh, people from the Philippines who were international witnesses, especially an Australian uh, sister, Patricia Fox, who was a pretty celebrated case. And I, I myself, I'm on a blacklist. I can't go to the Philippines. And um, But even under these circumstances, we were able to use uh, electronic communications and our uh, partner organisations in the Philippines, especially in the legal and human rights areas, to uh, really accumulate a lot of data, analyse it in a way which I think communicated the drama and the severity of the situation and uh, publish these into the Human Rights Council. And as a result, I think we, we did elevate uh, the perception that you know, there's a very serious crisis of human rights taking place in the Philippines, which is not being addressed properly in the international community. And hopefully this year, 2022, we, we will we created some better conditions for some further action to happen. And uh, some of that can happen in the United States. Um, but many countries now have some kind of legal uh, framework, which they could use, you know, against egregious examples of human rights abuse. And uh, we've got many of them in the Philippines. So 
that's going to be our focus this year, which is election year in the Philippines also. Right. Yeah, it's um, it's good to hear uh, how you work and um, the background of the organization. And you've mentioned so far uh, several presidents of the Philippines, Ramos, Arroyo, uh, Aquino, Duterte. Is this the, is the problem of extrajudicial killings, does it differ depending on who the leader is? Um, how far back does it go? And what exactly is different under Duterte? Mm. Well, I think it is different under different presidents, but you know it's a continuing feature of all the presidencies. So I, I don't really have any any um, detailed uh, grasp of the situation, say before the 1960s election of uh, Ferdinand Marcos. But it, if you think through the history of the Philippines, there's uh, especially the 300 plus years of colonization by Spain, uh, during which there were many local uprisings. And basically it was a colonizing power. So they did kill people to maintain control. And then uh, there was a revolution against Spanish uh, colonial rule in the end of the 19th century, which was successful, but was unfortunately, well, it was a very violent event as well. And then this was truncated by, you know, the uh, Spain theoretically selling the Philippines to the United States and uh, US military forces arriving and crushing the independence force. So there was another extremely violent event at the start of the 20th century. Um, so the, the violence, especially from the late 19th century, is very big, I think, as a political uh, weapon or uh, a means of control in the Philippines. And uh, while there were periods of respite in the 20th century, the the like the I think the you could say that the resistance to the American occupation went right up to maybe 1920, so a couple of decades of it really, and uh, then you have a short period if you look back on it um, uh, to the 1930s when the left movement, the Socialist Party and the Communist Party of the Philippines were active, and then they merged um, more or less uh, in a legal type of uh, struggle, but that was also truncated by the Japanese occupation, which was another extremely violent event. And then the liberation from Japanese occupation was also extremely violent. And uh, you could say Manila was virtually destroyed to save it. So uh, uh, then after that, the um, US is applying a policy all around the world that applied it in the Philippines as well, that when the resistance fighters against the Japanese got elected to the Congress in 1946, and among them were communists, that they were kicked out of the Congress. And so there was a sort of very anti-democratic event. And so those people took up arms again. So there was another conflict through to about 1955. And um, in a way that never ended. So there were still sort of armed groups from the Huk um, Balhap, the People's Army, that, that were still active into the 1960s. And by the end of the 1960s, the, some of these became uh, part of the New People's Army or the founding elements of the New People's Army under the reformed Communist Party of the Philippines. So, you know, there's waxing and waning. Um, and at the same time, you've got 
a, a sort of oligarchy really running the country. It's sort of um, rich, powerful families with a, based on land ownership and uh, based on some sort of relationship with foreign powers, especially the United States. And so um, they, these people had their own armies. So powerful families used violence to uh, maintain control over economic assets or to eliminate competitors. So even at this sort of so-called uh, conservative level of Philippine society, use of violence is a norm normal technique. And um, so you, you, when you think about the whole of Philippine society like that, um, there's, um, it's, it's really normal actually for people to be killed for political reasons. And um, I think Filipino people that I know, say compared to Australian society where there's a lot of people just don't give two hoots about uh, what's happening in politics, I think in the Philippines, even the, the, the sort of poorest level of society, people are quite attuned to uh, what's going on around them and uh, how they should navigate it. Um, yeah, so that's... That's the sort of way that people have to live. And um, then you get, you know, like with President Marcos um, declaring martial law in 1972, he, may, he may mainly used violence against his oligarchic competitors. So a lot of rich people were locked up and a lot of their assets were just confiscated and handed out to cronies. Um, the, the resistance from the left and the communist uh, movement was there, but I don't know that it was so decisive. Um, from Marcos's point of view, it was much more important for him to, to knock over um, people like the Aquinos. Um, so uh, he, he did kill a lot of people. Um, it was a very arbitrary, unpredictable violence that uh, the dictator Marcos used. Um, Snipers would shoot people dead in, in demonstrations. Uh, no one knew who was going to be targeted. It didn't really matter to Marcos. Um, but then, say, we come up to um, the Arroyo presidency. So Gloria Arroyo took part in a movement to um, depose President Estrada on, on corruption grounds. And she she was in the the sort of inner circle, I guess, of the democratic movement um, and knew personally all those people from the trade unions and the women's movement and the farmers um, who rallied against Estrada. Um, and I think she decided that um, if she, when she got to be president, which she did, um, that she would, the only way to sort of stop these people who she knew to be effective campaigners was to use violence against them. And it was actually extremely shocking to people. Just there was one, pretty well one person being killed every day while she was president. And it was um, not so arbitrary and unpredictable. I mean, people could really feel it coming. Um, so I think we, by the time her presidency ended, there was about a thousand people roughly killed and another thousand or so disappeared. Um, so it was uh, very, very hard on the uh, democratic movement in the Philippines to, to cope with that. And it took a long time, but in, in the end, the international community sort of understood the Arroyo presidency was a um, embarrassment. When she 
towards the end of her presidency, made a trip to Europe. There were several governments refused to meet her. Um, that hasn't happened to Duterte, not that he's travelled much, but, you know, in a way, uh, he's somehow manoeuvred his way around that he hasn't had to face that sort of direct rebuke. And um, for whatever reason, you know, there's, there's many reasons why governments in Europe or North America um, are more, more concerned about some other issue than the Philippines. So they're distracted. So very briefly at the Human Rights Council in 2020, there was uh, a great focus which worked, um, but it, it, it rapidly disintegrated. Just simply in that case, it was because the government of Iceland, of all places, the government of Iceland took the lead at the Human Rights Council in uh, 2019 and 2020 to get that uh, decision to have an investigation and a report. But they, they left the council. They were replaced by some other government and nobody took up the mantle. So it was as fragile as that. Um, so, yeah, I think um, we, we've, you know, what, I don't know how long it will take, but I think ICHIP's uh, broad goal is to... Um, agitate enough that governments will get a real focus on what's happening and take some decisive action to stop the you know really enormous abuses of human rights which are taking place at the moment right it sounds like one thing that all of these presidents of the philippines had in common and all understood was that if you don't kill the poor if you don't kill people who represent the national democracy La Our last episode, we interviewed Joma Sison, who described national democracy as a, an effort to overturn the semi-colonial and semi-feudal economic uh, character of the Philippines. If you don't kill the people who represent that, then they will win. So I think from that perspective, it is also understandable that violence is the, the main tool. Um, but while that's going on, does it make sense for ICHER to try to ask the rep these uh, semi-colonial and semi-feudal leaders to stop killing when they are facing an existential threat? And it, also, while you're doing this work, are you also pushing for national democracy to, to win in the end? Well, I think we, we are not going out there to advocate for the national democratic movement's immediate goals. But in as much as their goals are, you know, basic human rights, you know, the, that... Uh, really already articulated in international uh, treaties and covenants. Well, yeah, there's no problem from our point of view to talk about those things. But um, the main concern we've got is that <clears throat> even if there's a big political struggle and even if there's an armed struggle, which there is in the Philippines, there's, there are rules for the conduct of these struggles. It's completely illegal to kill anyone <laughs> who's unarmed uh, for any reason, let alone a political reason. Um, you know, it's illegal to go and murder someone because you want to rob them or because it's a crime of passion. It's illegal. Um, and it's illegal everywhere, even in Philippine law, to kill your political opponents. But it happens. Uh, so I think that uh, if the Philippines... Uh, government wants to be a player in the international community, it should be held to the standards of the international community and its own standards, which are in its constitution and its laws. So it's one of those uh, really uh, 
baffling sort of things, a doublespeak situation in the Philippines because the constitutions created in 1987 was a, is, is in reaction to the Marcos dictatorship. It's quite a strong democratic and pro-human rights constitution. And many laws have been passed to enact those provisions of the constitution. So it's, you know, it's great that in the Philippines has laws against torture, against uh, enforced disappearance, against abuse of women, and all of these things exist in law, but they don't exist in, in real life. So it's a sort of um, a, a crazy sort of situation when you're in, engaged in the debates. Um, and I think even in armed conflict, um, and it's tragic to have a country that's in a civil war, and that means its army is is only really killing other Filipinos. Um, and the rebel Filipinos are killing members of the armed forces of the Philippines. But there are rules which the Philippines is uh, signed up to about the conduct of war. And these are basically the, what we used to call the Geneva Conventions. It's now called International Humanitarian Law. And in, in those rules, you cannot kill unarmed people. You, you cannot kill prisoners. You cannot kill the wounded uh, of the other side once you've captured them. Um, so, uh, all of, but unfortunately, all of these things are happening. There are aircraft going around the countryside bombing farmers, bombing Indigenous people. They, they are uh, machine gunning people's houses. Uh, there are helicopter raids, there are artillery fire. Um, things that no civilian can cope with uh, happening to them um, and often is to drive them off their land and for that land to be given to somebody else to, you know, uh, exploit economically whether it's mining or plantations or some other kind of development. So it's really, really harsh. It's, um, and I think uh, once the, um, well, it's obvious in the Human Rights uh, Council that the, the High Commissioner's report really did, did a good job in pointing out these basic problems. And it wasn't as if the report was rejected, it was just sort of ignored. Um, Anyway, so I, th I think that uh, if your basic question was, well, is there any point in doing what you're doing? Um, yes, there really is a point because the international community cannot work um, if member states become crazy, violent mavericks. Maybe for a little while I can ignore it, but things get completely out of hand if more and more do it. And I think we're living in a world <clears throat> now where the standards are falling apart and we, we are having obvious problems uh, of breaches of international law by powerful states, starting with the United States itself, which never, I think, accepted that uh, it needed to be uh, constrained by any rules. It was the one that set the rules. But, you know, we have Russia, we have China, but we also have, you know, the Philippines. We've got Myanmar. We, in our region, we have dictatorships all around, actually. And in Latin America, we have so much history of violence uh, done by states, um, done more or less at the instigation of the United States. And uh, we have in Europe, you know, uh, a whole uh, region of the world which was convulsed by war and is trying to set up a system where they won't have that again, but it's, it's falling apart right now before our eyes with the Ukraine and all of this stuff. So um, I think uh, in our own little way, uh, 
you know, what we're doing from iChirp is important for the Philippines. Uh, we are having an impact of some sort, um, but it's a part of a bigger global effort, I think, to constrain political authorities to, to abide by rules which are pro-human rights. Um, it's a big struggle. <laughs> Right. Yeah, I wouldn't suggest that there's not a point to what you're doing because uh, your organization is how I find out, uh, find a lot of disinformation and end up doing uh, interviews like this for the benefit of our listeners. So I appreciate it. Um, but I am interested in whether there is a, um, a disconnect between the, the side of the, the, the side of the movement that wants to mitigate the damage and the other side that wants to win the war and whether those are in conflict at all? Um, well, if the question is uh, whether, say, iChirp has got some, some conflict with the uh, National Democratic Front, no, we don't. Um, because we, 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 do, we do hear government of Philippines complaints about a, a brief, violations of human rights by the New People's Army. We do hear them say that. But when we ask for the data, um, there is no no data. Um, at the Human Rights Council, in, in, in specifics, the government of the Philippines said that the New People's Army recruits child soldiers and that this is, and it's true, that would be a breach of uh, human rights and, and should be stopped. Um, but when we ask, well, wh which children, you know, which location, which year, there is no there is no answer. So that's one problem. But last year, there was a particular incident that took place, which um, was an obvious violation of human rights, where it seems that a New People's Army unit in Bicol region set off a landmine under a civilian vehicle and killed people uh, who were just traveling down a road. Um, so that, um, that landmine, as far as I know, was like a an anti-personnel device uh, which was triggered by being run over. So it was a very arbitrary thing. Um, and I, I don't know the result, but uh, the, there was a, an undertaking by the NDF and the NPA to investigate and to hold accountable whoever gave the command for that to happen. So I'm still waiting to hear the result, but see, that's that reaction, which was immediate, is just completely different from what happens with the Philippines Armed Forces, who always just make up a story, uh, say, you know, they, they, they shoot down civilian farmers and they say, oh, no, they were actually New People's Army. You know, it was an encounter. Uh, they shoot down environmental scientists. Oh, that was an encounter. They <laughs> shoot down Indigenous leaders. So it, this is um, it's a very different experience, but I know that uh, there's no... And there's no saints in this. There's, it's, there's nothing, nothing but chaos in conflict, and so um, crimes are committed or mistakes are made, and they have to be held accountable. That that is how we we try to constrain the the, the violence and uphold human values. So, um, yeah, I think as far as as the ICHEP is concerned, we're quite prepared to. Uh, investigate and challenge 
where we we get some evidence about anybody's doing breaking these rules we're trying to, we're trying to uphold but uh, we you should realize that it, here in the Philippines case we're dealing with a government a government itself which is duty bound to uphold its uh, rights of its civilians is is killing its civilians so this is the most important uh, aspect to appreciate and it's why that's our focus there have been so many killings under Duterte that it, it's hard. It would it would be hard to justify discussing just one and not the rest. But I also did want to give our listeners some some of the details um, on how these attacks take place and what happens in the aftermath and who's carrying them out. And one of the incidents that uh, I chirp recently um, released a statement on was about, was the killing of two elderly activists uh, last month. Can you tell us about that case? Yes, well, I think this case is related to the election campaign that's now underway. It's not quite officially started yet, but it's really underway. So um, the, the election will be in on May 9. And one element of the elections is uh, called the party list section. It's like a nationwide electorate and <clears throat> parties which are <clears throat> deemed to represent the marginal, marginalised communities in the Philippines uh, can contest in this part of the election and win seats in the Congress. And uh, the left parties under a block, they call themselves the Maccabean bloc, um, have got I think six representatives in the Congress at present, but in the past they've had up to nine. <clears throat> Not that it's uh, anything to do with winning a, a vote in the Congress, but it's a voice in the Congress, just a voice for the people. Um, so one of these parties is called Anak Pawis. In, in Tagalog, that means the, the uh, children of sweat. It's really about workers, and it's a, it's a party to represent the interests of farmers and workers. So two, two members of this party in Sorsogon. Sorsogon is a town in Bicol region to the eastern side of Luzon Island. It's a very poor region of the country. And uh, there has been a lot of political violence there. But the, uh, these two people, well, one, the, the woman, Rose Marie Galias, she's age 68. And the man, Silvestre Fortades, is age 70. So they, they, they were uh, they're active members of the Anak Pawis party list and they were working in their market stall. So it's broad daylight, two motorcycles approach, each carrying two riders, and the one on the back is a shooter and they, they just open fire and kill them. So and then they just ride away. That's a classic uh, killing. It's, there's, it's, I couldn't tell you how many cases are like that. Um, either one motorcycle with one shooter or this two motorcycles. And um, almost, I think, always these will turn out to be um, the uh, soldiers from the intelligence unit of a nearby battalion or division. And uh, so there will have been a surveillance unit uh, following those two people, Rosemary and Silvestre, making sure that they go there uh, regularly and then the the, the, the shooting team will have been deployed to, to shoot them after some period of surveillance. And uh, the timing may also relate to some other incident going on in Sorsogon, but I think in this case it's, it's a warning that um, these left party lists, 
the women's party list, the student one, the workers one, uh, the teachers one, they're all targets. Uh, they're all targets. And so it's to, to stop people campaigning in the elections in this case. But, um, you know, there's been other, other really horrific systematic killings undertaken uh, in these last few years under Duterte. Um, I mentioned Negros was where the sort of intensity really was, was obvious. And that was from 2017, 18, 19. Um, basically some sort of, uh, and it was an NTFL type thing, a, a type of death squad is, is, is created and they would just drive around in the night, say, starting to uh, grab people around, say, one in the morning through till five in the morning. They would move through a region and maybe kill 15 people, just take them out of their beds and shoot them. Um, so this, this is another technique. And I think this was to terrorise a whole district, which was allegedly influenced by the rebels so, and nearly all the people who were killed, I think all the people who were killed were civilians, of course. Some of them were elected members of their local council. Some were teachers and you know, some were lawyers. They were highly respected members of their community. You can imagine the impact that has on, on the community when they, they hear of it. And how can that happen? Uh, how can that happen except by very uh, systematic uh uh, program to to uh, you know, identify all those people, be sure where they are, and then kill them all. Can the impact be measured um, in terms of election results? Election results? No, I wouldn't say that. <laughs> um, I think the the impact is, uh, you know, it's puzzle. How do you say it? Uh, no, it's not what you expect. I mean, the people going out there to terrorise and kill. They do achieve that. They do kill people. They do scare people. But the, the other thing they do is provoke people to stand up and fight back. This is, the un, this is what's not expected from their point of view. Their theory of uh, counterinsurgency warfare, all their systematic training about how to eliminate resistance only creates more resistance as well. So I think, uh, you know, there's, there's no real data on this. Uh, you know, what's the level of, say, the New People's Army? What's the level? You can tell more what's the level in the civilian movement. Uh, so in this last period, um, we've had significant, even with the pandemic, significant uh, mass protests against Duterte because people see from a wide range, people from a wide range of views, really, not, not just one ideological position, see that they, they, it's, it's uh, absolutely vital to stand up and say no and be seen rather than to let it get worse. So there, there's definitely a sort of counteraction that's happened that's uh, undoing Duterte, um, <laughs> even though he's applied more violence and force than anyone for 15 or 20 years. And um, I think uh, just just judging from the read, just reading the media about uh, the New People's Army uh, thing, um, it, it doesn't seem to have had any impact on, on the capacity of the New People's Army. Um, that, uh, 
at, at the personal level, and it's going back a long time, back into the 1990s, um, I did visit a, an MPA um, camp in uh, Luzon and for just a few days, and uh, I met one guy there. He said, oh, he said, I haven't been to a demonstration since 1987. And, uh, oh, I said, what was that? Oh, he said, that was the Mendiola massacre. That, that was, uh, I realised that day that it was no point in having rallies. Uh, he went up to the mountains and joined the New People's Army. So um, this is one of the things that happens. It, and, and it's not just the Philippines. I, I remember hearing the same thing in, about the Irish. The British Army killed four uh, IRA members. Uh, well, then 10, 10 young men went and volunteered next day, uh, that type of thing. So, yeah, I, I just think um, uh, what we're really witnessing is a you know, horrible loss of uh, human life. Um, and a polarising of Philippine society, um, intensifying of social conflict rather than any uh, pathway, you know, to resolving the conflicts. The one thing that is out there, that's why I think, you know, talking about the peace process, philosophically speaking, it is, it is an actual process. It's uh, underpinned by signed agreements and it, it offers a at least a, a concept or a hope for another path, a non-violent path to uh, resolve co conflicts. Yeah. But, uh, you know, the, the resolution from the um, farmers and uh, workers' side is that there should be a genuine land reform, um, that it really would be a big blow to the landlord, sort of oligarchic uh, layer that runs the place. Um, and are they willing to negotiate? Well, it's, it's clear that for now, not enough of them are willing to negotiate. But it's also clear that all the way through, there's always been some wanting to do that. So going back to the Aquino family, I think Benino Aquino was uh, one of those people who was really capable of pursuing that pathway. And he was you know, assassinated by Marcos. Um, so... Yeah, there's, there's uh, um, perhaps you had this discussion with uh, Joma Sison that uh, now there are elements of the national bourgeoisie in the Philippines who are open to uh, progressive change, um, but not enough yet. Oh, no, uh, we didn't cover that, but that's, that's good to hear. And uh, yeah, I, w I wish we could have covered it. I wonder if um, you would also discuss another case that iChirp uh, recently covered, which was the um, the case of Bell, which was also in southern Luzon. Yeah, it's um, Quezon, yeah, southeastern Luzon. Uh, this case, uh, I, I looked at it and um, it's interesting that it was January 2022 before uh, the story emerged of, of a kidnapping of a whole family and the rape of the daughter, um, the torture of the daughter, um, which was in uh, August 2020. So it took 18 months for this to emerge. Um, but again, it's, uh, it, it's a case which I think uh, it's a bit more clear um, or it clarifies this uh, storyline that comes through the Philippines a lot, that, you know, uh, 50 uh, members of the New People's Army surrendered in such and such a place. They were all given you know, 50,000 pesos and uh, some tools or something like that. Um, and uh, this is a sign that the New People's Army is being defeated and so on. In this case, you, you see a farming family were just kidnapped, 
held for a couple of weeks. Uh, the parents were tortured, the, the, the children were tortured, and this particular 15-year-old girl was raped multiple times by one of the militia, uh, Kafku militia. Um, and uh, they, they were forced to sign a paper saying that they, the, girl, the girls were forced to say their parents were members of the New People's Army and the parents were forced to say, yeah, we surrender. Uh, and it looks like, you know, they, they've been able to somehow recover themselves from this really shocking experience and decide to take some legal action against the perpetrators. So I, I don't know how it will play out, but um, let's hope that there's some sort of way that the lawyers, the family and their community can manoeuvre in the legal uh, processes in the Philippines that at least some of these people are, are held to account. It's very rare that it happens, but it has happened. Uh, in the case of uh, General Palparan, it, it happened. I don't know if you're aware of that one, Jacob, but um, it's just an, another shocking military mm. story. But... Um, this guy Palparan um, was trained in the in in Australia and the Philippines. He became a general, um, but as a, as a colonel, even he was already a sort of uh, well known as a butcher. Um, his his job was to kill civilians, and he he did it. Um, some again, a person I met was was murdered by him soon after I, I met her, a human rights advocate, and. Um, a couple of years later in central Luzon, uh, soldiers and under his command uh, kidnapped two young women students from the University of the Philippines who were doing research work and um, they were never seen again. But uh, they were seen in a camp by another person who had also been <laughs> kidnapped and captured but who managed to escape. And uh, that, that witness was able to identify the two girls uh, or young women and um, describe the, the sexual slavery they were subjected to in the military camp. And uh, as a result of that, Palparan was put in jail in 2018. So it took from, I think, 2004 when, when this actual uh, crime was committed to 14 years later he finally was taken to court so um you know it, it, it might happen um and i think we should follow the bell case is there some uh political explanation for why a, a military official would be held accountable in one case and not another because there are there's other evidence that the judiciary in the philippines is sort of captured by the the administration I wonder what what would sway the outcome. Uh, in this case, uh, Palparan was notorious. His behaviour was one of the reasons why President Arroyo was rebuked in Europe. So uh, it was um, his fate was somehow associated with President Arroyo's fate, and she was discredited by the end of her presidency. So the um, potential for some way to hold him to account was more, I think. That is, the judiciary would see, well, we could we could uh, demonstrate that we've got some kind of independence here without getting too much kickback. Yeah. And uh, the other element was that there was a witness. There was a person who was a credible witness. So normally in these situations, there's no witnesses. The only, or the only witnesses are the killers, the, the military who gave the command, the ones who fired the shots and so on. So uh, 
you you end up with um, you know a possible investigation that goes nowhere. There's lots of these in the Philippines, so I, I do think it was an unusual convergence of situation. And also, by the time he was really going before the court, he was retired. So he's again not not living inside a military camp for a while. He did, you know, he was able to run away and and hide in a military camp even when he was retired. But eventually, he had to be handed over to the authorities. So, yeah. One of the people that Bell named in while making her case public was um, Antonio Parlade, who was the leader of the National Task Force to End Local. Communist armed conflict. <laughs> armed conflict, right? Why? Why is that name significant? What is that group? And do you think that they might meet a similar end to the general you just described? Oh, I would really hope so. I mean, uh, but the uh, the way the NTFLCAC worked, it's a it's got a council. The head of the council is the president. And of course, he delegates it to somebody else. So uh, it's the it's full of generals and a few police people. So there there is a, it's sort of a way to manage the competition between the military and the police about who's really got more influence and power. But um, uh, Palade is a general. He's not he's not a police. Okay, um, Palade is the spokesperson. So he was the person out there making the statements on behalf of NTF LCAC at the top level. Uh, he I've seen him uh, interviewed on uh, Philippine TV at the time when they got the uh, Executive Order seventy signed by Duterte, which which created NTF LCAC. Um, so he he was he was really beside himself with joy that now there would be a whole of nation complete uh, focus uh, against the left wing uh, resistance in the country. And uh, even though there's a little bit of uh, lip service paid to, um, you know, the new people's army aspect of this situation, the great effort is, is actually on civilians. So the NTF LCAC had the power to demand that every department and agency of the government uh, provide some budget to it for its work and to require them to do their tasks. You know, like if, if the NTF LCAC said to the Department of Education, we want the names of all the members of the teachers' union, then they would have to give it. And they did that. They did do that. They said the whole union is a front for the terrorists and all of them have to be... Uh, Put under surveillance by NTFLCAC, and then they arrested and uh, jailed some leaders of the teachers' union, and some teachers were shot, some were killed. So it's uh, that's a sort of microcosm of it. But say if you look at Negros, where they really did the sort of uh, laboratory on this, uh, it was like I described to you. And they they decided, oh, here's a region. We, we, we know there's a lot of people here who disagree with the government. They're agitating for land reform. Uh, let's just crush them. So they spent their time identifying all of these significant leaders in the community, and then they went out and killed them all. Um, so they, you know, they, they, to do that, they needed to use the, the Department of Local Government. They have, had the Department of Social Welfare and Development. The, 
how can you know it's it's absurd to us but how can the department that's meant to provide social welfare be used to get people killed you know but but this what was empowered by executive order 70 and ntfl cac anyway palade he was he was obviously an over enthusiastic guy uh, i would say just a complete fanatic and uh, he he took it literally you know if somebody said in the philippines somebody said the poor really need our help uh, we should do something further for the farmers here or these Indigenous people over there. Um, well, he would say, oh, these, these people saying that, they're obviously terrorists. You know, that, that's the language of the communists. You know, uh, so, so we're going to put them under fire, you know. And his, his most absurd thing was like the Miss Universe winner for the Philippines she made a statement of, you know, of compassion for poor people and he, he denounced her as a terrorist and um, he made some, there was some sort of um, side, side wisecrack about her red lipstick, you know, that even her lipstick is red, you know, as in red tagging. And so, so all of these people, all these women, all sort of got the most scarlet red they could and put on really, really red lipstick and uh, sort of dared him, you know. Any, anyway, he was, uh, that shows sort of how completely out of perspective he was and he ended up being denounced by, you know, other extremely repressive characters in the Senate and others um, because he was an embarrassment, you know, to the sort of broader cause of repression here by making these absurd sort of statements. But, I mean, it's one thing to, you know, to draw attention to that stuff about the, the Miss Universe and the celebrities and all that, but, but underneath that, there were a lot of people getting killed or very severely frightened or tortured. That that's what Palade was doing, and Palade was the southern uh, command commander when the Bloody Sunday thing took place just south of Manila, and um, I mean that was his command. So he had a sort of combination of his NTFLCAC role and and direct uh, role, and so yeah, there were nine people killed that that early that Sunday morning. Yeah, that was the last case I was planning to ask you about, Bloody Sunday. Um, yeah, so in that case, they they found a, a judge in Manila to issue search warrants for all of these. There was probably sit over twenty search warrants issued. Um, they had a combination of police and army go to all these locations. And, you know, they, they're allegedly there to search for something, but actually they were there to kill people. So it's an abuse of the judicial system. That's what NTF LCAC is doing in this case, um, because a search warrant is definitely not even a warrant of arrest, let alone the use of viol you know, deadly force. So... Um, yeah, and it was just like many of these other cases earlier on in Negros. Uh, they they went to these places around midnight to 4, 4 a.m. So everyone's asleep. And they drag them out of bed, um, identify the person they're after, keep their relatives away, and then shoot them. A uh, couple of the cases that where they killed, they, they tortured the people first, man and wife case. Um, so... It was, um, to me, it was closer to home because Southern Tagalog, the region is, is a strong trade union area. It's a highly industrialised and uh, 
the uh, union union leaders tend to become leaders of broader uh, community organisations. And in, so several of the people killed were basically trade unionists, as well as some of them were specifically leaders of union uh, or worker organisations. Some were Indigenous leaders, some were like fisher folk, some were campaigning for urban poor around housing rights. That's, that's who they killed. <laughs> um, you know, when you spell it out and you ask, you know, how can this be a policy of a government? But it it is it is what is going on in the Philippines. So, yeah, yeah, it's kind of confusing to hear Duterte described as a populist leader when his victims are are really the the people of the Philippines. He's a great. He's got some great spin doctors, and uh, you know they only ever tell you half the story. You know, so yeah. you know, obviously, lots of people in the Philippines think that. Um, the drug problem is a problem, but a lot the same, or even more people in the Philippines think that if there's somebody is a suspect of a crime, they should be arrested and put on trial. They shouldn't be shot on the spot. And that, but you never hear that part. I think uh, he's got a lot of people frightened, with, with, and they're, they're quite right to be frightened because people are getting killed all over the place. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think... Uh, We'll see what happens in the election. Of course, Duterte is not a candidate, but Marcos Jr. is a candidate and uh, his daughter, Sarah, is a vice presidential candidate. So, you know, I think uh, we, we will see, unless they're defeated, um, there'll be a continuation of what we've been describing in this interview. Um, I think the violence will actually only get worse. And, uh, you know, it's, it's very sobering to think it could be worse. Right. Is there any uh, outcome you can imagine that could address any of the problems you've described? Well, from our point of view, as people outside the Philippines, I think that there is some hope, yes, that uh, first of all, we know the International Criminal Court is going to lay some charges. Um, just I hope it was sooner rather than later. Um, they've got their own resource constraints and the pandemic constraints and so on, but I think that uh, we should expect that to happen. And uh, that will have a very sobering impact, I think, in the Philippines. The other is that in the United States, the um, Philippines Human Rights Act is is making some kind of progress in the Congress. So there's more and more support, I think, developed for it. But beyond that, you've got these Magnitsky laws, uh, especially in the States, but it's also in Australia and Japan and Canada and many jurisdictions, um, which enable more targeted sanctions. They're not really criminal proceedings, um, simply a finding, yes, that this, this person's associated with egregious uh, abuse of human rights and we we will freeze their assets or stop their travel or some combination. So I think all of these things are imminent, really. That that will um, have an impact, but I, you know, I think it's true. We we can do all we can from the outside, but the Filipino people are the ones going to resolve this in the end. And um, you can see a lot of people organised and agitated to do to do that in the Philippines. So that's uh, I think the source of our confidence. Great, um, thank you, Peter, for the important work you do and for coming on the show. And you're most welcome, Jacob, and thanks very much for going into all this detail. That was Peter Murphy, chairman of the International Coalition for Human Rights in the Philippines. 
Thank you for tuning in to this week's episode of Southeast Asia Dispatches. If you enjoyed this interview, you can also check out New Narrative's other podcast, Political Agenda, for current affairs in Singapore. This is Jacob Goldberg, signing off. I hope you all have a good weekend.